I've seen this in my practice of law in the right-of-way field when we were doing road widenings and the like. Some of these property ownerships go back over 100 years, like into the 1800s, into an era where Americans were having much, much larger families. And so you say John Smith might have owned this tract of land in the 1800s. John Smith had 10 children. That wasn't uncommon. And then some of John Smith's children had eight, nine, ten children, and nothing was ever devised by will. And so I guess that's how you get to the 200 owners of a piece of farmland. With every generation, it gets exponentially worse, yes. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Okay, IJs, I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short. And today on Infrastructure Junkies, we're going to take a bit of a left turn, and we're going to talk about heirs property and heirs property issues. Now, Kristen, do you know what heirs property is? Well, interestingly enough, I had experience with heirs property before I knew really what it was called. Yeah, and that's exactly what I would have expected you to say. Now, the even more important question is, do you know why it's important for you as a right-of-way professional to understand heirs property and the issues surrounding this topic? I'm embarrassed to say that I, I really don't. Well, as it turns out, it's a typical American property right issue and one that is frequently overlooked. In fact, it is so overlooked that I would venture to guess that 90% of our listeners won't even know what we're talking about at this point. It's caused the evaporation of wealth, and it's important because a right-of-way professional can unwittingly exacerbate an already bad situation without being informed. Well, Kristen, this is an interesting topic and maybe a little bit off our beaten path. Who do we have to discuss it today? Well, Dave, today we have Carla Carter, and let me tell you a little bit about Carla. Carla Carter began her legal career as a law clerk in 1997. After a two-year clerkship, Ms. Carter spent 23 years practicing law as a local government attorney for the cities of Virginia Beach and Suffolk, where she primarily specialized in real estate, environmental law, and land use matters. Carla currently serves as senior counsel at Dominion Energy, where she manages a variety of real estate matters for the company and is a frequent speaker on the subject of heirs' property and the need for access to legal services in low-wealth communities. Carla is also the founder of the Learn VA Heirs' Property Pro Bono Program. Welcome, Carla. Hello, how are you? We are so glad to have you on today. I am excited to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for making time. I know you're in the middle of a work day and your time is very valuable. So let's let's get into this. We had a little chat about this episode before we got started. And I know the subject matter is very near and dear to your heart and it's very important. And you've recognized the importance of this subject matter, but I don't think the word's out yet. Can you just give us the most simple explanation that you can as to what this whole concept of heirs property is? For sure. But first, I just wanted to speak to your comment about the middle of the workday because I'm an attorney. <laughs> I just want the world to know this is my time off um, to, do, <laughs> to talk about this topic. Even though Dominion Energy is very supportive of this work because of their commitment to environmental justice, I'm very thankful to be working for a company that allows me to pursue my passion 
while still being able to serve the company. So let sure. me just get that, put that out there. Absolutely. But anyway, <clears throat> thank you again for allowing me to be here to talk about Ayers property, which a lot of people won't have any idea what that is. They may, but they may know what family land is. They might know grandma's property down in Alabama that some people are still living on it, some people aren't. Family land, it's land that passes without the benefit of a will at the most simple description. That's what it is. And a lot of land passes that way, but what that does is it makes the land vulnerable to a whole lot of issues as it relates to title complications and it's just a very vulnerable way to own land. So you're going to have two or more owners and the property is held as tenants in common. Now, I know you're familiar with that phrase, sure. uh, Dave, in your real estate world. And so there are no rights of survivorship. When a co-tenant passes, their fractional interest passes on to their heir. And so you can understand that the more owners you have, the worse this problem gets. So with each generation, it gets exponentially worse. So with it not passing through any type of estate plan. Okay. When you say worse, I know what you mean because I've dealt with the issue without knowing it yes. was heirs property, right? Without knowing that that right. phrase applied to it. But when you yes. say worse, what do you mean by that? Well, it's vulnerable because the land cannot be financed. You can't do anything with the land when it's held in this unstable type of ownership because you don't know who the owners are. So, for example, let's say grandma passes away and grandma's husband's already died, grandpa's already gone, left the land by operation of law. Let's just say we're in Virginia. The land passed to grandma. Okay, so grandma passes away, but she's got four kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, one of the kids has already passed away and has five kids. Mm -hmm. So that fractional interest continues to get smaller. So imagine a piece of pie. The more people who have an interest in that piece of pie, the smaller that piece is going to get. And then imagine that everyone has the right to the whole pie, even if the one with the tiny sliver. So imagine a pumpkin pie, it's October. Yeah, can we do apple? No, I'm, I'm I like not, pumpkins. Okay, pumpkins <laughs> easy to divide too. You can make a nice little line. See, I'm with Kristen. Yeah. see, she knows exactly the crust. What the I was, crust. Something wrong messy. with both of you. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? The apple pie kind of some the the it gets messy with family. So you yeah. can imagine an apple pie as well. But we're gonna go with pumpkin. Yes, ma'am. So you got it's a lot easier to divide a pie into four pieces than it is to two hundred pieces. Yeah. Okay. Right. So right. we've had problems with heirs with numbers 200 heirs or more yeah oh my gosh each generation so imagine that one piece of pie and you keep cutting it into tinier and tinier pieces yeah so that's the picture you can think that's what heirs property is without an estate plan you've got this pie that's going to keep getting divided and divided and you can't do anything with it you can't finance it so that's a challenge because you're not going to be able to get financing. So a lot of times you'll see properties with trailers on them. A lot of times they don't have access to utilities, again, because of the title issue. So you have 
properties with trailers on them that are dilapidated. Up until very recently, if you were the victim of a natural disaster, you were ineligible for FEMA support, FEMA relief. So Mm -hmm. that really came up during Katrina. But I might add something. And I've seen this in my practice of law in the right-of-way field when we were doing road widenings and the like. Some of these property ownerships go back over a hundred years, like into the 1800s, into an era where Americans were having much, much larger families. And so you say John Smith might have owned this tract of land in the 1800s. John Smith had 10 children. That wasn't uncommon. And then some of John Smith's children had eight, nine, 10 children, and nothing was ever devised by will. And so I guess that's how you get to the 200 owners of a piece of farmland. With every generation, it gets exponentially worse. Yes. So, Carla, let's say I've got a parcel and we've got to run title on it and we're in this situation where there's 200 owners. How do you even know who all the heirs are? Exactly. Ah. (laughs) Yes, that's the issue. And I kind of will lead up to talking about that when... I get back to what David was saying about land purchased back 100 years ago Mm -hmm. or more. Right. Well, this is a really sobering statistic. And I first, I didn't even know what Ayers property was. And I was an actual law student before I recognized what Ayers property was. I didn't know what it was before I went to law school and was sitting in an estate planning class and realized, oh, my God. We have heirs property, and this is a problem. And this is why it's a problem. You're at the whim of the intestate statutes of your state. So you have no control over where your land goes. Grandma might want it to go a certain way, but it depends on what that state's rules say. So it's better for you to make those rules yourself. I used to run title for an oil and gas company years ago in Texas. I don't know if this is still the case, but if there's no will, no probated will, it's descent and distribution. And it lays out how things would transfer in the absence of a will. And we had a parcel that had, I think it was approaching 200 people involved. And it was given to me, like I knew who the people were. But if it's not given to you and you go, hey, here's this piece of property. Here's what the tax records say. Here's who we think owns it. And then the person that owns it is dead and there's 100 gazillion heirs. How do you find those people? Well, I'll tell you what we do. And this is where this is going is you send it to condemnation. Okay. But and you deposit. You, no, I've, I've watched this happen. You've got a road widening and the property is agricultural. So it's not like it's in the middle of the city. You deposit whatever the value is, $10,000. Yep. Because there's a cloud on title or unknown owners. And then these people get these notices and they're like, what do we do? That's what yes. you do to it. It goes to condemnation. It does. I mean, I was on that side having to do that. But in identifying heirs, there are a lot of resources now from the state and Ancestry.com, for example. We've actually used Ancestry.com to try to track down, when I was working in Suffolk, to track down some heirs. It is kind of like putting together a puzzle, mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating So we did devote a lot of time in trying to identify as many people as we could without having to go by condemnation. But I think some people would take the easy route and say, well, I don't know who they are, but we really went the extra mile. Carla, let me ask you this, because I can tell what people who are listening to this podcast may say to themselves, like, really? How this isn't all that. This never happens. You know, this isn't really all that common. I could see some listeners maybe out west 
or in areas where this isn't so common, say, how common really is this? Do you have any feel for, you know, is this really kind of an obscure, arcane situation, or how often would you really see something like this? Why is it common enough to be important? Well, I'll tell you. And just looking at only one small segment of the population, Ayers Property touches the African-American community, according to the USDA, the leading cause of involuntary land loss in the African-American community is Ayers Property. Also, the Native American community, the Latin American community, the indigenous peoples of the Hawaiian Islands, they were all owners of millions of acres, these various groups of property known as heirs' property that has resulted in their loss. And so let me just give you one of those populations. Let me give you one example. At the beginning in 1910, African-Americans owned 15 million acres of land in America, 15 million acres. By 1970, ownership had declined to 5 million acres and continues to decline. Why is this? Because we began, after emancipation, African-Americans began to acquire land under the Homestead Act and through other mechanisms. So land and the promise of making economic gains through land was a real goal of the community. However, we were released into a culture that was hostile. We didn't have access to legal services. And the land was lost. In many ways, there are three things that led to what is known as the Great Migration. This Great Migration resulted in six million African-Americans leaving the South. Mm -hmm. Millions of acres of land were lost, were forcibly taken. Some people were forced out of their homes under the threat of death, where they were forced to leave their homes so their land was taken over. Right. You know that the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 is only one example of the heinous crimes that were inflicted in the name of claiming territory. Because let's face it, this is all about territory. Yep. It's about land. The Hilton Head Island community was previously heirs property. That land was given to African-Americans when they didn't think it had any value. But when they realized, oh, this is waterfront property, let's seize this land and to turn it into something profitable. People who are unsophisticated in land ownership and the legalities around it were easy prey. So I will tell you, because I have three things I feel that contributed to the Great Migration. Bullets, bugs, and brutality. The boll weevil that decimated crops in the early 1900s led to a lot of sharecroppers moving to the north. The bullets are both world wars led to declines in immigration and a need for labor up north. So that those sharecroppers whose crops were being decimated by the boll weevil saw some opportunities up north and said, hey, I'm out of here. And then we already talked about the brutality, the lynchings and the public events around lynchings where children were actually taken to lynchings and they had food and it was like a celebration. So that was the culture that led to the Great Migration and a lot of land being lost. Absolutely, absolutely heinous. But I'm going to say something, okay? And unfortunately... 
We've touched on some of these topics, not as they affect African-Americans, but in some episodes with Howard Mansfield, who's an author from New Hampshire, we've touched on America's kind of distorted relationship with real property. Obsession. 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 Absolutely. It's an obsession, and we're different from the Europeans. We're different from other countries, but we are the most land-hungry people on the face of the yes. earth. And we have been since the first Europeans came mm-hmm. to this continent. The Indians weren't, mm-hmm. but the first Europeans came to the continent. And unfortunately, one of our great American traditions is to take property that we want, regardless of mm-hmm. who's living there, who has rights in it. But daggone it, we want this property. We're going to take it. And you saw that yeah. way back with the Indians. You, Carla just gave some great examples. And then you still see it sometimes in the development of certain communities and where they want to put them. I think I read a book on a place called American Beach, which was historically African-American. If it's American Beach, Are I know. Are talking about, I know Bruce Beach in California, which mm-hmm. made This is a lot on of the history. East Coast. Uh, and it was oh. beautiful, beautiful beachfront property that was absolutely African-American. And they decided well, me, let, they wanted to start let, developing it. Well, let me tell you a great book to read, and this is one of my mentors. Andrew Carl is a professor at University of Virginia in history. He's written two books, one called Free the Beach. This is the book itself, Andrew Carl, K-A-H-R-L. He's written another fantastic book called The Land Was Ours, and it really takes a deep dive into the impact of development on the stealing of land in low wealth and vulnerable communities. It is not just African-American communities. I focus on that because of the unique history that kind of led to why we have more heirs property than any other ethnic group or any other population relates back to those factors I described that led to the great migration and a disconnect from the land. But he really is a phenomenal speaker and, in fact, was the reason I really got led down this path. I just happened to be at an advanced real estate seminar in Williamsburg and heard him speak. And that's when I heard those numbers about land loss and the millions Mm -hmm. of acres. And it it just took me down this path. I mean, I had already been touched by heirs property in my own family when I realized, oh, you mean my dad's house? And the Northern Neck, that little house, is an estate. Like, I thought estates were, you know, Rain Man, Brewster's Millions. Even as an educated law student, I mean, I did not know that. But when I learned and took that class, I was like, oh, no, we have a blended family. That's not, we don't want that confusion in our family. So Mm -hmm. I went to my dad, explained to him, and because he trusted me, we got his estate handled. And that was great and a good relief for us when he did pass away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it sparked something in me. I only thought it was just my family. I didn't realize how prevalent it was until I heard him speak to the question you asked. How common is this? It's way more prevalent than I even I appreciated at the time when I talked to my family. Mm -hmm. So this is why this work is so important, because there has been a study done and I'll try to send you the link to it, but it was done by Reuters, R-E-U-T-E-R-S, that estimated, and they said that they know that this number is not high enough, but they've quantified the loss and the impact of land loss to black farmers at $326 billion, with a B, dollars. So 
this is huge. It's becoming more and more quantifiable. And at least there is a trend towards helping stem this land loss in the communities through partition reform. So remember that piece of pie that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. with all the little tiny slivers in it? Yeah. Yes. So just imagine someone has a razor thin slice of that pie. I mean, so thin there's barely any pumpkin on it. Just enough to make you just mad. Like, why do I even have this? Right? Not even a bite. But, but let's say they take their little sliver and sell it to somebody outside of the family. In this scenario, a developer. So the developer takes that little sliver of pie and goes to the judge and says, hey, I want to buy the whole pie. And so he files a petition action. The judge says, okay, you can have the pie. All the other people with their pieces of pie are like, what happened? What what happened to my piece of pie? Your pie is gone. That can happen? It has happened countless times. It happens all the time. That feels like it should be illegal. Absolutely. There's a video I'll send you guys that Vice News did about a family in Louisiana where this happened. This land had been in their family for over 100 years, and they didn't even get notice that this man had filed this petition. And the next thing they knew, they were told, you don't own your land anymore. And one of the heirs got $2,500, and he was able to just use that to put a trailer on somebody's land nearby. But they lost all the acreage, and he took it and timbered it over and became very rich. Let me pause the conversation to pose a question. So you've given us a great background. You've given us uh, an overview of the injustices. You have identified that this disparately impacts minority communities, particularly African-American communities. Does this create an ethical issue within the right-of-way industry? In other words, we can't help what developers do, okay, something that's happening in the private sector. But if we, as the state or an agency or a municipality, identify a situation where heirs' property is very, very clearly present. Is there an ethical obligation to handle it differently? Some people may disagree with me, but I think there is. I think that we have some obligation to try to identify the heirs. And if we're looking at the scenario of what you have to do before you can proceed with the condemnation action, trying to make a bona fide yet ineffectual offer of purchase, A part of that is identifying who the people are to make that offer to, in my mind, trying to identify who the heirs are. And so we did go to great lengths in my mind to do that, to try to identify, figure it out. And to me, that is the best approach. Now, when you say ethical obligation, it brings to mind another article that was done, another study that shows how the impact of the legal profession has had on land loss in these communities because a lot of legal chicanery has been taking place. Great word, by the way. It is. And it just really sums up what was happening. Yeah. And these practices that using the partition process and taking and getting people to sign things where they signed away their land and telling them it was one thing when it was another and divesting them of their land, doing stuff that they should have been disbarred for. So many things happen in our hands as a legal profession are not clean. 
And now it's our responsibility from whatever walk we're in, if we're in an opportunity to serve this population, to do our best. So if I'm in the right-of-way industry, I want to try to identify the errors as much as possible. But let me tell you, identifying errors is a time-consuming and expensive process. There's only but so far that we can go. I'm not suggesting that we spend five years identifying errors. Looking at trying to identify who the errors are to me, I feel is a reasonable duty that we should, but not to the extent of building the whole family tree. It can be very expensive, time-consuming. So one of the things that I do in helping the family members who have come to me for help is ask them that question, have you identified the family tree? And then I give them resources to do that on their own. Mm -hmm. But in the right-of-way space, I think doing some type of reasonable inquiry of the people who you do know, because you'll learn a lot from just talking to the folks you do know. And they'll mention somebody's cousin here or there. I've had to kind of do a, a rough sketch of a family tree when I was doing this work to figure out whose interests and how much they were entitled to out of the proceeds. So a little bit of that is going to come into it. But yeah, I do think so. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a DBE and SWAM certified right-of-way acquisition company. Pendulum is unique because they understand the human element of sensitive right-of-way issues. Did you know that Pendulum has a subspecialty in complex title issues? They are committed to doing due diligence and fully respect the significance of heirs property issues. Find out more at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. Well, Carla, I want to go back just, and this is just eating at me, when you talked about having the tiniest little sliver of the pumpkin pie that's sold to a developer who can then file a petition and end up with the whole property. What's the justification for that? Is it just, oh, it's too hard to find everybody or out of sight, out of mind? Like, why would a judge grant that? Well, historically, one person with a fractional interest had standing to petition the court to either divide the land in kind or to sell it. But now the petition laws have changed. And back then it could be sold at auction for next to nothing. Essentially, Kristen, what she's saying is you could, you can, I'm sorry, did I just mansplain? You, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. You can force, the court can force a sale involuntarily because of one owner who has a fractional interest has standing to bring that petition. Wow. Well, it seems unfair. And the court could do this, and some states still can do this without regard to any historical connections to the land, any attachment to the land, to the exclusion of other people who would want a chance to buy out but often don't. In these cases, they usually don't have the capital. They don't have the, the expertise. And keep in mind, they didn't have legal representation. These right. people just... This land was just snatched out from under them. So they knew what they were doing. Are they compensated in the developer situation that he, he hits the whole thing? Does money ever find its way to those heirs and owners? A tiny bit because they're never going to get fair market value. They're yeah. getting, they're going to get pennies. Or they're getting a fractional sure. interest of something that's gone to auction. And there's one yeah. bidder, right? <laughs> it's the guy yeah. who's, who's forcing the partition. So the one forcing the sale bids, bids really low. And then that little tiny pocket of money gets distributed and they get yeah. nothing yeah. Get next nothing. to nothing right okay that's what's happened and that's and that has happened 
countless times across many different communities. That's very disheartening. It is. Carla, here's another question. So I know you've done some work to help sketch out a family tree and figure things out and you worked with your dad on his estate. Once you're in a situation where you've got an heir's property going on on a parcel or on a piece of property, if you know all the heirs and you've kind of figured out the family tree, like, can you clean it up? If you know all the names, how do you even fix it for future generations and heirs to those, the current owners? What do you do? What's the solution? Well, there are many different ways you can approach it, but you can put the land in a trust. You could put the land in an LLC. Put it in something that keeps it from being vulnerable to partition sales. And so there are different ways that you could approach it. Getting an estate plan and creating a will that does not in and of itself create heirs property. Because, for example, a house. I leave this house to my five children. But that's creating heirs property because you don't divide a house five ways. It's heirs property, Mm -hmm. essentially, by Mm -hmm. will. Now, if you've got a situation where your family members are getting along, y'all have a plan, I would hurry up and put that in a trust and figure out what y'all want to do with the land, how you want to develop it. Because there's so many different approaches to the land depending on the situation, whether it's urban, suburban, rural, whether it has timber on it. So there's so many different scenarios depending on the situation. If you have an urban parcel, It could be an Airbnb. You could rent it out if the people don't want to live in it. I can't give you one size fits all. It really just depends on what's going on with the land and where it's located. And heirs property shows up from urban to suburban to rural, although it's historically more connected to rural land. Right. But it really is prevalent in your urban settings as well. Right. Well, let me go back to the right of way setting because you made some interesting comments about maybe we as right of way professionals have an extra obligation to find the heirs. Okay. So let's say we did that and we've identified 10, maybe 15 people who may have an interest in the property on a road widening. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to take a strip of farmland that goes on for a mile. So we found 10 or 15, but then there's the dreaded unknown owners Mm -hmm. where there may be people out there who have an interest, which we simply cannot identify. And when unknown owners constitute a cloud on title, Mm -hmm. and that's when we go to condemnation. Now I will tell you Mm -hmm. from the agency's perspective, this is what happens in Virginia. We have a petition for condemnation. Okay. Mm -hmm. The money's been deposited with court. We have a petition for condemnation. We get a guardianed litem for the unknown heirs. Mm-hmm. We notify all of the owners that we can. They show up for court. We put on our evidence of value and then walk away. Yeah. Because of unknown owners. I've been in this situation. These people show up and they're from the country and they have no idea how to get their money out or how much they're entitled to. And they don't understand, you know, if there's 10,000 on deposit and you may only be entitled to $750 and we walk away, the agency walks away. Yes. And everybody's mad because the clerk has to keep the funds on deposit. The people don't understand what's happening and do not have the resources to get their money. It's terrible. One thing that we would do that uh, a practice I carried over when I was in Suffolk, when I was in Virginia beach, We couldn't do the work for them, but we would give them sample forms. Yeah, I know. Because we couldn't do it, but we didn't want them to just be completely just out, not having any idea of what's what. We have had situations where someone, an heir has died before we could close, Mm -hmm. and we've had to pause, and fortunately, that 
heir didn't have a complicated situation or with a bunch of children that we had to then break it down further. But we had to kind of press pause mid-process and shift gears and help the family. But it went a long way to that family getting that money that was kind of life-changing for them and help that without them. And we were fortunately just getting an easement. So they still had the land, but that money was something that they could really use and benefit from. And so when you can easily identify the heirs, I call it low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. You got a situation where you've got easily identified heirs. Let's go ahead and put that in a state plan. Let's get all of that tied up and it'll make it a lot easier for you to be eligible for in your rural property areas. Kristen, for example, Mm -hmm. conservation easements, Mm -hmm. that's a great opportunity for you to retain your land and make a lot of money. But what has to happen is the public has to be educated about what heirs property is, that it's even an issue, right? And then be pointed to resources so that they can first figure out who their heirs are and get on the path to stabilizing the land ownership. But if you don't know who your heirs are, or if you haven't taken that time, that's the necessary first step right. before you even get to a lawyer. But that's what, I mean, get them identified and then get in with a lawyer and get an estate plan done. I didn't know much about heirs property. This has been incredible to listen to. And in a minute, I want to talk about solutions and what we can do, what you can do, what needs to happen for this to be better moving forward in our country. But first, you want to play a game? Ooh, Okay. All right. <laughs> Be careful what you yeah. agree to. <laughs> okay, we play a little game here on Infrastructure Junkies called Over Under Push. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to give you three items, just random items, and you have to tell us whether each one is, is it overrated, is it underrated, or eh, it's a push, it's just aptly rated. So we want to hear your opinion. And then the really fun part of this, Carla, is that I get to tell you at the end whether or not your opinions are correct. Does that sound like fun or what? Whether my opinion is correct. I yep, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dave will <laughs> chime in, and he sometimes disagrees with me. And I'm like, sir, this is my game. I'm the judge. Thank you very much. And the jury. And the and jury. sometimes the executioner. Uh, exactly. Okay, Are you up I'm for down. this? All right. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So our mutual friend, Carrie Lynn Hirsch, told me that you like to cook. Mm. And so our first item is cooking with Campbell's cream of anything soup. Is that overrated, underrated, or it's a push? Mm. It has its place in my kitchen. So Mm. would I say over or under? It can also be a push now. You do have that option. And you said that's like. That's just like it's aptly rated. It's just fine. I say push. I mean, it has its place under certain. But I like to use the healthy request. I don't like to (sighs) go hard with the. It's a lot of sodium in the original version. It sure is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think you're right, first of all, but it has a place in my kitchen too. Like I always have cream of celery, cream yeah. of chicken, cream of mushroom, and yes. I might use it, but it's not a, I don't use it for everything I ever cook. But it comes in handy, like chicken broth. Chicken can, broth, yeah. Can I chime, chime in here? Like, I guess. I think it's underrated because I didn't know it existed until like two months ago. I didn't know you could use like cream We're of celery earth. or cream as a are base. You, are I you knew the soups existed. Did Why think, would I cook wait, with them? On, what am on, I cooking? Hold on. Stop what? right there. I'm going to mute you. Did you think that people bought cream of celery soup and added some milk and ate it like a soup? Yeah. 
Nobody does that. My mom used to feed me cream of mushroom no. soup. No, that's not that's not correct. No. Nobody eats those no. like a soup. They go no. into recipes, casseroles, crock pots. They do not go. Bless your heart, Dave. Bless your I heart. Mean, bless his heart, Carla. Are you dying at this? This is Bless his heart. All right. I know what that means in the South, Carla. Yeah. I know exactly what that means. Yeah, we mean it. <laughs> you're an too. idiot. We mean it too. Bless your heart, Dave. All right. Well, Carla, you're right. So you you went on that one. Ooh. Here's your next one. Mm-hmm. The Washington Commanders. I don't know if you're a football person. We're going to find out. <laughs> Overrated. Okay. All right. What's your reasoning? I really don't care about football much i like the steelers so anybody other than the steelers is overrated that's why you get along with carrie lynn and the steelers yeah. carla were my childhood team too because they won all the time and that's how kids pick their favorite team <laughs> <laughs> i became my favorite team when they were playing the vikings in the super bowl well you know what carla you're two for two and it's only because Ooh. i root for uh, washington but i think the commanders is the dumbest name for a football team ever i really don't like the name that's the agree. only reason I liked I it when it was silly. just the Washington football team. I that loved, was cool. Leave I loved the Washington football team. It was so right. unique. Nobody had ever done it. It was kind of like shaming the organization. Like, you I guys should never have picked the Redskins. Now you sit here with this dunce cap because you can't have a team name. No, it's a classy name, though. The Washington football, football team. team. Yeah. I'm yeah. not feeling the commanders. No, it no. sounds like yeah. a Marvel movie character or something. Like, no. Exactly. Just I like it. No. Okay, well, you're two for two. You're killing it so far. Ooh, the last okay. one, Love it. and I, I think I might know how you're going to respond to this one. The TV show, Shameless. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, I have to qualify my response because the last season, they kind of went down the drain. They kind uh -huh. of, but... I loved Shameless. So I would have to say because the bulk of their shows, their stuff was pretty good. I'd say underrated or Yeah, yeah. Put. Yeah. And and before before you pass okay. judgment, Kristen, let me give huh? some background to our <laughs> listeners. Like Carla and I, when we first were getting to know each other, kind of bonded over the TV show Shameless. <laughs> didn't yeah. we and i think yeah. you used to actually call me frank gallagher oh dear that's a that's a bless he your heart too so, he named him yes i have to admit that show was i was obsessed with it for a while yeah it made me feel better about my life right no right. kidding right that's why i watch hoarders sometimes i'm like my house is in great shape carla this is very rare, but you are three for three you have won the game of over under push and your prize what? is Nothing, but we're very <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> I will cherish this nothing for the rest of my life. Be sure to put it on your resume and on your LinkedIn that you won over under push. I'm sure that will mean a lot. I will. Carries a lot I of weight. <laughs> All right. Airs advocacy. So we've identified the problem. We understand how it came to be. We've talked a little bit about the injustice. What's the path forward? And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what your solution is. And I think You've got this organization and you have a pro bono effort. Tell us how you're going to correct this. Well, certainly I can't do anything alone. It involves collaboration. And there are a lot of amazing people already working out in this space that's making a difference in how even how partition suits are handled from state to state. So I'll have to go back to 2018, the 2018 Farm Bill. It's a huge piece of legislation that in 2018, 
there were provisions made for the Uniform Partition of Heirs Property Act, a model statute that could be adopted in various states. And I mean, in all the 50 states, each state had the option to adopt it in exchange. They got certain benefits under the Farm Bill by adopting the legislation. So at last call, I want to say it was 23 states, but Virginia, specifically, let's talk about Virginia. Virginia has adopted it. How Virginia chose to do it was to incorporate a lot of the protections of the UPHPA into its partitions statutory scheme. So they didn't have a separate track for heirs' property partition suits. It was just these factors were placed within our partition statute in general. And so it is one of the things that the new legislation does is it it triggers a requirement for an appraisal so that you're not going to have somebody bidding. You're going to get fair market value if you go into court for and file a suit. You have to pay fair market value. It's not going to be people being able to bid low and walk away and leave families with nothing. Also, the court has to consider the family's emotional attachments to the property and to the land and give the family's first right of refusal to try to buy out the petitioner. These are great things. And in conjunction with that, there is now, and I know that it's being used in certain parts of the country, but there is an heirs property relending program that allows people to borrow funds to help buy out petitioners in these partition suits. So now it's not just a slam dunk. The developer can go straight to ownership and go straight to the bank with this cheap land that he then turns into a project or develops out into whatever, or timbers or whatever they're doing. But it's not an easy, fast track. Now, granted, there are people out there who are looking for loopholes. And this is why we need advocates, lawyers who can represent these people's interests to protect them in the court and to make sure that the statute is fairly applied. Because you can have a statute, but if you don't have a person that's justly applying it and fairly applying it, and you don't have an attorney or an advocate to make sure that that's done, then what good is it? We need to have advocates in the system, both from the bench and from the bar, who are fairly looking at the statute and applying it to help these families. So going back to this whole concept of a developer buying a little bitty sliver and then taking over the, the you just, land. You can't get over that, can you? I cannot. I cannot. And I, I want Million, to know. It, millions of acres. Yeah. It, that's, that is going to haunt me. And the question I have about that is, is that like a business model for some of these developers? Are they seeking out these properties yes. specifically to yes. do that? Yes. And in fact, I'm going to send you that Vice News YouTube video that tells you about the property in Louisiana and where we talk to a person that's doing this. That's his, it is his model. He says it with his chest out. He's like, this is what I do. So he is interviewed. You have to watch it. It's sobering, but it really gives you a better understanding of just how the legal system has played such a part in this taking of land. Oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to share it with our listeners, too, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I will make sure that you have it. I'm going to send you that. I have a few resources that I'm going to make sure that you guys have that you can share. Absolutely love that. That would be great. Yes. So you've set up this pro bono organization for this very purpose. Is that right? 
Yeah, so it started back in 2020 before the pandemic when I went to that seminar and heard Professor Carl speak, and it just blew my mind about this impact. And so then the following year, I spoke on this topic at a conference. And from there, people would start to refer people to me who had questions about their land and what they needed to do about it. And what I was finding is that other than the Black Family Land Trust, which is a great organization in Virginia that helps families, their mission is to help families turn their land into a performing asset. And they are really designed to really help your everyday landowner, the people who just have no idea what's next or what to do. They'll help them build their family tree. They will do all of these things. They'll help them find ways to turn their land into something for profit. They've helped a family turn their family land into a shrimp farm. And it's just amazing. So they're really great on the community outreach side. And when I met them, Ebony Alexander, she's the executive director. When I met her, what she was looking to build was a legal program or something that could provide legal services, but they couldn't do that through their organization. So now, as a result of just time and meeting people along the way who have a similar mindset and really are about this mission, we have gotten to this place where we are now able to form this pro bono group. So right now, we have a pilot program that we're launching in Richmond, in the greater Richmond area and surrounding counties that will pull from that population. They'll have to meet certain income criteria to qualify. But if they are eligible, pulling from this pool, we'd like to uh, get them matched up with attorneys in our pro bono network. So far, we have attorneys from Troutman Pepper, Gentry Lock, and Dominion Energy's legal department will be participating in trying to help with this effort. And what we want to do is to see that grow, to see attorneys who want to participate either through actually providing the pro bono services or helping us with the training. Because what we're doing is not only providing the pro bono network, we want to create opportunities for attorneys to get trained who want to help and who don't have that skill. So let's say just basic estate planning. I think having basic estate planning skills would be a good skill for any attorney to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just think about your own community and how you can help your own circle with those basic skills. Um, great. Yes, you can be a criminal defense attorney. If that's your thing. Great. But you know what? Broaden your horizon just a little bit because this is as a practical skill that you can really use in a lot of settings. So helping training attorneys and also training them on cultural competency because that is where there's a disconnect. You have to appreciate this historical context of land loss in this country and how that trauma has impacted these populations, how they do not trust the legal system. You have to be sensitive to those things. And in order to really effectively serve that population, you have to have cultural competency. And so even it's just as important as professional competency. Right. So the training is going to be specialized on skill on those areas that mostly impact heirs property, like estate planning, real estate, title issues, but it'll also include cultural competency training. 
so they can really appreciate that as they go to serve these people. Well, Carla, how can our listeners and any anybody listening that's interested in that find out more? Well, I'll give you my email address. Right now, I'm literally in my infancy stages. Like, literally, I'm building a web page, building an email. All of that's happening right now. I'm doing this while working full-time and wow. growing food outdoors because I really believe in growing your own food. So. Yes you are really witnessing the very beginnings of this thing. And I'm really excited. Well, it is exciting. And, and you, I'll tell you this, when, when you, when you have your website set up and more things in place, we will so gladly share that with our listeners. Um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful, a wonderful thing that you're doing. And I really admire your dedication to this cause. It's just wonderful. Carla, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much for taking some time out of your day and thank your em employer for allowing this to happen. They're very supportive I, of these. That's great. I appreciate it, too. I appreciate them so much. So thank you. All right. Thanks, Carla. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>